If you've got your Bibles, uh, please do open them to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be ending uh, chapter 4 and beginning in chapter 5. So you can start turning there now. As normal, it will be on the screen as and when necessary. But before we get there, I just want to like, be honest with you and open with you. I'm, I'm a bit nervous this morning, uh, which is quite rare for me now. Uh, uh, but the topic that we're talking about today is, is a tough topic, um, and that's the reality. It's culturally very tough, and it's, it's a stronghold, I believe, in this nation, and I think in the nations, and I believe it's also becoming a stronghold in the church, and this week, I have never written and deleted so many things in preparation. I've set a new record. Like, all those that are doing PhDs, I could have done all your theses together. Um, I've written loads and deleted loads and written loads. Um, it's a tough topic this morning. And so I'm going to communicate as well as I can. Uh, but if there's anything that you think, that sounds a bit strange, not completely sure I agree with that, what I want to encourage you to do is come and speak to me at the end or we can arrange a lunch or whatever, um, to, to talk about it. What I wouldn't want you to do is to think that was absolutely outrageous what Josh said and then to go away and let it build up. Um, so I want, what we want to encourage every Sunday, this isn't just today's topic, but every Sunday is an open environment where if there's questions, you should feel very free to be able to come and discuss and challenge and we should all open the Bible together and say, well, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say, which is our authority? Um, so that being said, let's pray, and then we're going to get into, uh, into the message. Lord Jesus, we love you. We, just, we, just, we, we wonder at your glory. We gaze at your majesty, as Godwin said. You are majestic. You are wonderful. You are almighty. And Jesus, we just pray this morning, as we open the words that you spoke through the Spirit, Lord, that you will, that you will so work amongst us. I pray for an openness I pray for a willingness to learn. Jesus, I just pray as we open the Bible, may we push, it, push aside sort of cultural sort of, um, thoughts and things that we've been brought up in, Lord, and just say, well, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say into these different elements, the different things that we're looking at today? In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've been doing uh, Acts, those of you that have been with us, and we've called it Kingdom People. And the question that we keep on coming back to is, well, what does it look like to be kingdom people? What does it look like to be people who have said, Jesus is my king, I follow him and I follow him, I put God first. What does that look like to be kingdom people? We're going to start reading today from uh, verse 32 of chapter 4 as we look to answer that question. What does it look like to be kingdom people? So Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We're going to stop there for a minute. And one thing I want us to notice from this first part of the story today is verse 33, where it says, God's grace was powerfully at work. What does it look like to be a kingdom people, a place where God's grace is powerfully at work? And we see in this scripture, a little bit like we do in the end of Acts chapter 2, where we see the overview of the early church. Luke's giving us, stepping back, he's giving us an overview of the early church. And what we see again is that the Jerusalem church is pretty much nailing it. They have got this church thing down. They are doing a very, very good job. They're devoted to each other, to community, to teaching, to worship, to breaking of bread. They're all together, one heart, one mind. There's no needy people among them. They are nailing this church thing. And what we see is that God's grace is at work. God's grace is at work. And what we need to understand, and it's vital that we get this, is that we are a people of the grace of God. And what does that mean? That means that we bring nothing to the table, except sin, except mistakes, except choosing to go away from God. We bring dirty rags to the table. We're a people of grace. And that's so different from our culture that says you need to Train yourself up. You need to look impressive. You need to be impressive. You need to be schooled. You need to be extraordinary. We come as unschooled. We come as ordinary. We come as broken. We come as dead. But we read these wonderful words in Ephesians 2, but God. We hear these words that Jesus spoke on the cross just before he gave up his breath. It is finished. Because we don't bring anything to the table, but he brings everything. And that is the grace of God, this great exchange. We give him his, our dirty rags and he gives us his righteousness. He makes us right with God, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. It's the grace of God. And it's so important that we get that in like the foundation, that we understand that, that we don't come bringing anything, friends. Do we understand that? We come empty, we come broken. But Jesus fills us. He fixes us. It's the grace of God. And so these are people whose identity is people of grace. That they're saved by grace. And here we see in this passage that they're living by grace. They are demonstrating the grace of God at work in them as a community. And the question we can ask is, what does it look like to be a people of the grace of God. It's quite like an airy thought. What does it look like to be a people of the grace of God? And I think we've got a fantastic example here of what it looks like to be a people who have received grace, received pardon, received forgiveness. And it's a generous people. Grace brings generosity. And so we read things like, all the believers were of one heart, one mind. They shared, they sold, they gave. What does the grace of God practically look like? It looks like a generous people. A people who sell, who give. Who are of one heart and mind. The gospel message birthed a church of generosity. 
because they followed Jesus who gave it all. And being filled with the Spirit, which we've seen time and time again, happens regularly at the beginning of Acts. What does that look like? Well, the Spirit, as, as Jesus comes in, in the power of the Spirit, they're filled with the Spirit, they're filled with Jesus, and they become generous. They follow someone who gave it all. They're filled with the Holy Spirit who gives it all, and so they become a people who are generous. John G. Lake who was a guy who moved an incredible power, dynamis, power, dynamite, as we've been looking at. If you know of Smith Wigglesworth, another guy, these guys saw God move powerfully. This is what he said about the Holy Spirit. He calls it the Holy Ghost. We're talking about the same thing. That the real miracle of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, so Acts 2, that we've been looking at, was not the outward demonstration of tongues, but it produced such intense unselfishness in the hearts of all baptized, that they each sold their lands and estates, they parted the money to everyone as he had need. Now that holds a lot of weight from someone who saw God move in very powerful, miraculous ways. The real, the real miracle of the Holy Spirit coming was the generosity, was the fact that suddenly they said, this is not ours, we belong to a different family. We have a new identity. We follow a different king. We are people of a different kingdom, of a different culture. And what does that look like? As the Spirit pours out, it looks like there's nothing that I say is just mine. It's all yours, God's. And if there's someone who has needs, I will give to that person. That's the real miracle of the Holy Spirit. They sailed land. They sailed property. We're not talking about kind of them coming to church on a Sunday morning and seeing what they've got in their pockets and thinking, I will give of the change that I have. The last thing I will do is give to the church, give to the needy. It's the first thing they do. They look at the big things that they have. Land, property, things that didn't just mean money, but meant social status. And they say it's not worth anything, because we have caught a bigger picture. We have caught a bigger vision, captivated by Jesus captivated by the love of Jesus. And we get this brilliant example who is a guy called Joseph, and we read that at the end of chapter 4, who the apostles then call Barnabas, son of encouragement. This guy is an incredible example. He's a real-life demonstration of the grace of God. Okay, we get the bigger picture that many people sold hands, houses and hands and land... <laughs> But it, we see Luke zoom in on one guy, Joseph, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He says, this is one of those guys who sold, who sold something to give. And actually, as we read, it's a bit of a strange statement. It says, he laid it at the apostles' feet, which we wouldn't really kind of use that expression these days. But what that basically meant is that he gave unconditionally. He gave without saying, like, Verity, this is what I want you to do with my money. I, I, I will sell my property, but you have to kind of give it to this charity. He, gave, he just said, Verity, here's the money. You do what God is calling you to do with it. He lays it at the apostles' feet. Outrageous generosity. No motive except the grace of God. And he lays it at the feet of the 
apostles. It is lavish giving. And in so doing, what we see is the prophetic promise being fulfilled when Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, I I preach, I proclaim good news to the poor. The year of the Lord's favour. This is practically outworking what Jesus said. What does good news to the poor look like? Okay, what does that look like? It looks like laying money at the apostles' feet so they can distribute to the needy as they have need. It's a prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' amazing statement in Luke chapter 4. What a beautiful picture of the church. And you kind of read in the Acts, Acts chapter 2 as, as literally God was adding daily to those who were being saved. You kind of think, well, it makes sense. As people looked in to this church where there was no needy amongst them, there, no, there was generosity everywhere, kind of makes sense that people thought that seems like a place to be. A place where they're of one heart and one mind. Where they give wherever, where anyone has need. It's kind of, it, it makes complete sense that people were being added daily because it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus had prophesied as he opened the scroll of, a scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. So we ask ourselves, what does that look like for us today? Does it look like we all head down to Fasti Hetzbiron after church and sell our houses? I don't think so. Now, I don't want to throw that out completely, so if you want to do that, we could do with the money. <laughs> But I think what we're seeing here is a, is a radical attitude towards money, towards being generous. And we want to we teach as a church that a good way to give to the church is thinking about 10%. It's a biblical principle and thinking about that's a good place to start. Nina and myself, we think, okay, this is a helpful place to start for us. Let's start with 10%. And we try to do that before tax, so it doesn't always work. But we try to do that before tax, and we try to say this, God, this is my first fruits. This is the most important thing for me, is giving before anything else, before paying tax or sort of property, you know, mortgages, that sort of stuff. We say, no, here, God. And so we teach that. We want to encourage that in a grace-filled way. You give out of what you have, not out of what you do not have. We want to encourage you to think about that, to pray about that as a good, helpful number. And the New Testament actually gets a lot bigger than that. So Old Testament principle, 10%. New Testament principle is Jesus gave it all. And and so what we don't want to do is be this stuck in, okay, let's just give 10%, not a percent less or a percent more, but how can we be generous? How can we be a people who are generous? How can we live like Jesus lived? And as we, as we go through this text, what we see is we see that there's, they see the need and they, and they sell property or whatever when they see that need. And I just, again, want to say thank you, church, for the last few weeks. And Al is not in this room at the moment, so we can talk about him. Uh, but the way that we have responded as a family to a, a couple who have gone through uh, what I would describe, or they would describe, I think, as the worst few weeks of their life. That's what they would say. They're 35-odd. So over 35 years, they've had the worst few weeks of their lives, the last few weeks. And we have gathered around them, and we have seen a couple who have need, and we have given. And I want to say, well done. We have given food, finances. We have given time. And it's just... 
It's just a beautiful picture of what it is to be church. A light in the darkness. Friends, this is what we are all about here in Good First. We want to plant a church, churches that are good news to the poor. That see the needy and fill that need because we're not so bound up by our, what we have. But we want to be a people who say we have and so we give. Jesus had it all. What did he do with that? Did he just kind of like keep it all? No, he gave everything. He became a servant. He became like us. And so we follow him. We do the same. So well done. It's great to see. But I want to encourage us. Let's continue to do that. Because the reality is there will be another needy couple or another need coming. And let's be filled with the Spirit. And as the Spirit fills us, Let's be a people who live radical, generous lives, consumed by Jesus, putting him first. One stronghold we have in our culture is money. There's no doubt about that. And it's something that is creeping into the church. What do we do in times like that? We stand up and we say, this is not going to have a stronghold on us. We make prophetic declarations with what we have, our possessions. And it's into this context of generosity that we read on. Uh, So we'll continue the story uh, from verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, uh, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yep, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet... Uh, of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You would guess so. Scary story. Scary story. And what we see here is that it's not all plain sailing in the early church. It's not all going perfectly. We see here that the church has an enemy. And in chapter 4, we saw that coming from the outside. You must not speak in the name of Jesus. Now in chapter 5, the enemy changes tactic. And so the speaking from the outside, he comes from the inside. And it's vital that we see this. See, the church is 
the church's, um, ta- uh, the, the church's goal is to witness. That's why the Spirit came. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. And we witness in word. We witness in deed, in all areas, in how we speak, in what we do, in living a life of generosity, as we've, as we've seen. We witness by being life where there's death, by bringing light where there is darkness, by speaking about Jesus, by, by, by living like Jesus. That's how we witness. And Satan's goal, the enemy's goal, is simple. Stop us witnessing. Stop us talking. Stop us living like this beautiful picture we have of the church. And Peter is clear. He says this. He's talking to Ananias, and he says, Why has Satan filled your heart? He doesn't say, why have you made a bad decision? He says, why has Satan filled your heart? See, Peter is wise to the reality that Satan is at work in this situation. Why has he filled your heart? And we see in chapter 4 that as, as Peter and John, as they're trying to speak, Satan tries to stop their witness by saying, you can't speak. And now as we see in chapter 5, Satan tries to stop their witness by saying you can't give. Don't give it all. Trying to stop word, trying to stop deed. And the reality is it's a very effective attack on the church. And what we see in Ananias and Sapphira is hypocrisy. They say they're going to do one thing and they do something else. And the reality is, it works. If we just think over the years, what has been one claim against the church as to why God can't be real, it is this. Christians say one thing and do something else. An element of hypocrisy. And that is what we see in this story, saying one thing and doing one thing else. Gandhi, who I've quoted before, said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And here we have this scary example of a couple who are living a life of deception. They're trying to deceive They're saying they're going to do one thing, they do something else. And they try to deceive Peter. See, they see Barnabas, they see Joseph, the son of encouragement. And they think, we want to look like him. We want to be like him, but we don't want to take the cost. And so they say, we're going to give it all, but they don't. And they deceive Peter. They try to deceive Peter. They're too worried about how they look. They're too worried about how they look. And we see from this couple that they're part of the church, so that they're named in the context of one heart, one mind, all part of the church, that they're landowners like Barnabas, Joseph, son of encouragement, that they sold property like Joseph, and that even that they as a couple are united, which we see... At the beginning, they were united in one heart and one one mind. Verse 32 of chapter 4. The difference is that they were united on the wrong things. They had agreed on something. They united on something that was wrong. 
they had agreed to deceive the apostles. And we must hear this warning as a church. In church life, it is easy to agree on the wrong things. It's easy to hear someone complain about someone else, and instead of getting alongside them and saying, hey, I hear what you're saying, but is that the best way to think about someone? Is that the best way to talk about someone? Instead of doing that, we say, yeah, do you know what? They also annoy me as well. The way they speak, actually, yeah, frustrates me. They are difficult to get on with, aren't they? They don't look quite like us, do they? And what we can easily begin doing is what Ananias and Sapphira do, which is where they agree on the wrong things. And friends, it damages the church. It damages the church. We must unite on the right things. We must unite on the right things. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, the problem with them was not that they, the amount that they gave, not enough. Peter was very clear. He said, it was your property before. You could have done what you want with it. Even after you sold the property and got the money, it was your money. You could have done what you want with it. God did not judge them because of that. He judged them because of the deception. He judged them because they lied. The hypocrisy. And Peter was clear about this. And Ananias is talking. So far, they're talking to Peter. But Peter says, you're not lying to me. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. Something powerful here. That as we deceive, as, as we think about... As, as, as they deceive us, as perhaps we attempt to deceive. What we're doing, we're not lying to other people here. We're lying to God, the Holy Spirit. Peter's clear about that. He's talk, they're talking face to face. But he says, you're not lying to me. See, the Holy Spirit is dynamis. It's dynamite, okay? It's power. We read that. We've been seeing that. We've been receiving the Spirit. But he wants a relationship. Talks of relationship. We don't just turn on and off the tap. Power. No power. There's a relational element. The Holy Spirit wants a relationship. And so when Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, breaks relationship, damages relationship. It's so important that we see that. And Ananias and Sapphira, they're, what they're focusing on is the wrong things. They're looking in their deception for the praise of man. They're looking for the praise of man, not the praise of God. This is a couple who are worried about their identity. They're worried about how they look. They want to be like Barnabas. And so they lie. They deceive. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And God knows. God knows. We, can't, we can lie to each other, but we can't lie to the Holy Spirit. God knows. And we actually see a similar story in Joshua, the beginning of Joshua, chapter 7. And we meet this guy called Achan. And the newly formed Israelites, young, victorious, after just having marched around Jericho seven times, then seven times on the seventh day, seeing the walls fall. Achan steals. And at, the, and at this vulnerable early stage in the story of Israel, Achan steals. And the judgment of God falls on him. It looks a bit different at the end, but the judgment of God falls on him. 
And a commentator would say, F.F. Bruce, says that the story of Ananias is, the, is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. Young Israel, young church, exciting, things happening in Israel, things happening in the church, and then Achan t- comes along, Ananias and Sapphira come along, empowered by, the spirit, like, by the Satan, and the enemy tries to destroy it tries to destroy what God is doing in the church in Israel. And God will not allow that to happen. God loves his church. Jesus said, as we've heard many times, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. Satan will not overcome it. Friends, God, it's so important that we get this. God is passionate about his church. It is his bride. He loves his church. It's his bride. And what we see is a God willing to go to whatever level he needs to to protect the, 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 the victorious progression of the church. And if that means this horrific story, which it does, then he's willing to do it because he will build his church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so this text is not a give-all-you-have text. This is a text about a holy God who is passionate about his church. A God who is passionate about his mission. A God who is passionate about the city that we live in. He loves it. He's willing to do anything for it. Anything, including sending his beloved son to earth, to die a death that no one would wish. He loves this place. It's so important that we get that. It's so important that we take the church seriously, that we hear the warning, that we heed the warning, that God is serious, that we are in his story, that God doesn't, we don't pull God out into our story whenever we want to have him in our story. No, we have wonderfully and majestically been brought into his story. So important that we, that we get that, that we are called to be a people who witness. Called into his story to witness about the gospel of grace, about Jesus. And the reality is that hypocritical behavior undermines that witness. If we say we do one thing and then we do something else, it undermines what we are saying. Just as I was preparing this week, halfway through my preparation, or my deleting is what I should say maybe, I drove to Ica and I had Freddie and me, which means I can park in the family parking. And as I parked there, there was another guy going to his car and I did what I... I have to confess in front of you, do quite regularly, looked in the back to see if there was any kids' seats. And there was no kids' seats in the back. So he was parking without having kids. And that angers me so much. I'm like, what gives you the right? And as I was going to go and speak to him. I find myself speaking to people too much, probably. But as I was getting angry, getting ready to say, like, how dare you? Like, There's other people who have kids. They should be getting that parking, not you, because you're lazy. I, I just felt, God, just talk to me about what I'm preaching on. Is that what Jesus would have done? 
That's hypocrite. If I come on a Sunday or, or whenever it is and praying for God, will you love this city, Lord? Will you help me love this city? And then I get and see someone in the parking, if a kid's parking and they've not got kids, and I get angry at them, I'm being a hypocrite. It's undermining the message. It's undermining what God has called me to do in being a witness. And so he's like, remember your preach. So good preaching because I, I like so often just like, I, I'm talking to myself and I'm not preparing. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. And if our lives are constantly ungenerous, constantly filled of anger, constantly dishonest, you fill in the blank, constantly jealous, then what it does is it damages our witness. It means that when we get the opportunity to speak about the hope that we have in Jesus and all the amazing things that he has done for us, that when we get that opportunity, people will be like, but aren't you the guy who's always moping, walking around grumpy, or getting angry? Well, you're the one that lies all the time. So why am I now supposed to believe you? That, hey, smile, Jesus loves you. When you're, most of the time, that's not how you're living. God's called us to be kingdom people, people who live differently. And friends, I get it wrong all the time. I do. And that's where the grace of God comes in. If we get from this story that if we're naughty, God's going to strike us down, we're missing the point. The grace of God is so over us. It's not saying like this isn't a threatening message. This isn't a threatening message. God knows us. He's not saying be perfect. And Luke is clear about that as we go through the first chapters as we continue God is building his church through very normal people people who are prone to anger who, who, people who doubt Thomas for example but a people of integrity a people who know that do you know what I messed up again today but God I'm coming before you as a broken man and I'm receiving your grace again Help me be better. Help me witness. Help me point people to Jesus. And the sad thing about this story is that Sapphira actually gets a chance to come clean. Peter, how much, how much, did, you, how much did you get for the property? And because they had agreed on the wrong things, she sticks to what they had united on rather than saying, I'm a broken woman. We made a mistake. I'm sorry. She sticks to her guns. And the sad thing is, the reality is that the story could have been very different. Say sorry. Receive grace. Know that you're going to make a mistake again. Say sorry again. Receive grace. Because, friends, we are not going to be perfect until we meet Jesus face to face. That's why Jesus came to fulfill the law, because he knew that we could not do it for a minute so we receive grace and we come as people who are, who are full of integrity I'm trying my best but Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit help me but when I mess up God thank you thank you for your grace thank you for your love thank you for sending Jesus it's wonderful coming here on Sunday mornings and worshipping God you may notice I get excited at the front that's because God is amazing he has forgiven everything 
everything. Everything. God is holy. He's untouchable. We, we don't deserve to be anywhere near him. We deserve to look at him and die instantly. He's of a different level, yet he welcomes us in. That's worth every, a, a little English jump every so often during worship because he is so great. He is so wonderful. We can get excited because of the grace of God. It's beautiful. He has welcomed us in. And the beauty of grace is this, that it brings integrity. It means that we can say we're broken. It means I can hold both my hands up and say I made loads of mistakes. It means I don't need to sort of kind of wear a suit and, and present my best on a Sunday morning and try to impress you because I have someone who has impressed God for me and that is all I need. And that's the grace of God. It brings a people who can say we're broken. We're pretty rubbish. We're doubters. We get angry too often. But God. But Jesus. And so there's no need to deceive. There's no need to say one thing and then do something other. There's no need to try to impress people. And that's the sad thing about this story, is there's a couple who try to impress. A couple who try to look different for the praise of man rather than the praise of God. They were not Barnabas. They were Ananas and Sapphira. They were two different people. I think it's so important that we get this. God has made every one of us in this room different. And if we start thinking, oh, I want to be like that person, we're rubbishing what God has done for us. We are all unique, friends. God loves you all. He loves me for who I am. He loves you for who you are, Godwin. We need to know that. It's so important. Because then, then we'll stop pretending to be people who we're not. And we'll receive the grace of God for who we are. It's such a powerful witness to the world. We're people who are broken. We're people who haven't got the answers. We're not Christians who look down on everyone else because we think we've got the answers. No, we're broken. It's who we are. Friends, you're not Barnabas. You're not the other person who you're sitting next to. You're you, you're Emil, you're Anuk. It's who you are. And so we don't need to pretend to be someone else. Know that, Michael. Know that God's made you. Know who you are. And he's proud of that and he loves you. Know that. God's spoken to us recently about a church being off-mute. You might have been there for that Sunday where Nina spoke about, you know, on your phone, sometimes you can make a phone call, and I'm going to make a phone call, and, and accidentally press the mute button, and the person can't hear you. God's speaking to us about being a church that are off mute, and she spoke about that as like maybe one or two of us in this room. I believe prophetically that is a, that is a, that is a word for us as a church to listen to for everyone in this room. He is calling us to be a people who are off mute. A people who demonstrate the grace of God 
to a world in such pain and suffering. A people who live off mute, who witness. Just imagine for Al and Chloe what their last few weeks would have been like, as difficult as they have been, without the family of God. Let's live off mute by demonstrating the grace of God in generosity. By saying, everything I have is yours, God. Do with it what you will. Laying it at the feet of God. Without any backstory or any want for what it should be spent on. And let's live lives of integrity because of the grace of God. Grace brings integrity. Grace says, I'm nothing. God is everything. And I'm going to celebrate in that. I'm going to celebrate in Jesus. He is amazing. Captivated. Captivated by the pearl, the majestic Jesus. The pearl of great price. going to finish uh, with some time of worship and ministry. Uh, just really feel that God wants to speak to us. I think it's no surprise that this week I've, I've struggled to prepare. I think because what we're looking at here, money and identity, they're two things that are so strong in this nation. And church, he has called us to be witnesses in word, in using opportunities, but in deed as well, in how we use, how we live our life, how we use our time. I'm going to invite Nina up. Uh, to share something. I'm going to invite Al up as well to start playing. If that's okay, as we, as we want to hear from God, yeah. uh, just want to, just going to leave a bit of time to worship God again, uh, to fix our eyes on God again. We, now, I was like running around after the kids during worship. Now we have an opportunity to focus really on God. And I believe God's going to move over the next 10 minutes or so. So I want to encourage us to be open to what Nina has to say and to God as we start to sing. So Nina. I just want to share, as I was um, uh, worshipping yesterday, I was just singing some songs to God and I felt um, he was it was uh, quite, uh, he was taking my hand gently and he was, he was saying Nina and I felt he was talking not just to me personally but to all of us as a, uh, to, to the church family. And he said, it's time to go into the next room. And, and uh, he said, you've been in the same room for so long. And he said, there's more rooms in the house. Um, there, there's new colors on the walls. There's new wallpaper to explore, like talking picture language. There's a, a table prepared for you. And I just felt God uh, really speak to me that as a church, it's time to go into the next room. There's more gifts to become. There's more to learn about God and who He is. There's so much more. Sometimes I can be you stuck and you think, oh, I know everything, God, thanks. But He says, no, it's time to go to the next room. It's time to move on. And as the Spirit comes, there's so much more to explore. We've just had a little taste.